0: Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show.
1: End warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast.
2: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
3: trade in is not wheat, they trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism.
4: I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations.
5: The Union forever defending our rights. If
6: you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program.
2: Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
1: Solidarity forever!
3: And good morning. Good morning. Yes, (laughs) hello Rebecca, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. You're a person who's been working hard. Yes.
7: You've got yourself a job. (laughs) Oh yeah, and um <laughs> next week I'm on night shift, so that'll be interesting. Oh goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> All
3: right, okay. Um so uh solidarity breakfast, uh we've got lots of things to talk to you about. It's a uh, we're moving into good weather. Did Yay. you know it's almost uh, lovely weather at the moment? And, it was uh, yesterday was lovely, yeah. Yeah, wasn't it? And so I'm assuming that there's actually live ears listening out there today. There might actually be uh lots of people wanting to pick Pick the program up on podcast, that's fine. And uh, I just want to uh, reiterate that uh, we still need to fill our coffers for our, uh, our, um, our Radiothon total, but uh, watch that space. And I have to thank uh, Daniel Schaaf for putting $50 in. Thanks very much, Daniel. He is a regular listener. And uh, today we're going to kick off talking to Pierre Morrow about a very serious issue. So uh, Pierre was... Uh, uh, charged with a fray after the um, rioting arising from, uh, a, 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 what is it, a fray, assault and rioting ar- arising from his involvement in the counter rally to the speaking tour of Milo Yamanopoulos. Yim- Pop- you say it? you say it.
7: Miley Yiannopoulos.
3: Yeah, on December the 4th, 2017, quite a while ago, but it's just reached court. And uh, we're going to have a yarn with Pierre about uh, the results of this particular case. G'day, Pierre, how are you?
6: Yeah, good morning, Annie and Rebecca. I'm uh, very good, thank you very
3: much. So you went off to court and, Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, can you tell the listeners what happened?
6: Yeah, look, I'll just give you just a, a very quick um a summary of, of what happened. The, the um the rally or the counter rally against Milo Yiannopoulos was in December two thousand and seventeen. It was um quite a, a chaotic um uh, rally because uh, we only knew the the where that we're gonna have the the, the speakers Uh, about two hours before then, so we had to organise very quickly. I was one of the organisers for it, and one of my tasks was to make sure that we kept the demonstration safe against any far-right fascists that would uh, come against us. And very early on, um, we had a group of four led by um, Neil Erickson, someone very well-known, who um, had developed a, a tactic to go into our... Um, lines to confront us and to use it as publicity. And so when we saw him um, coming, we um, went uh, towards them and, and uh, basically said, uh, Don't come through our lines, go around our lines. They were in a group of four. They actually grabbed me, um, assaulted me, and threw me to the ground and started um, punching and kicking me. This is all on video. And basically, a melee sort of started with about 10, 15 people. that went for about 40 seconds. Um, the, the longest 40 by...
3: seconds of your yeah. life, no doubt. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> that's <the> right. <triumph. laughs> it's really revolting. going yeah.
6: Mm. So there was a number of uh, people involved, both from our side and, and their side, or a number of uh, people who were injured. Um, about a month later, the police um, came to my house. Um, four of them came to my house and... Uh, so they basically started questioning me, and then a couple of days later, they uh, charged me with, um, like I said, a fray, two counsel assault and um, and rioting. Now the court case was just about a month ago. The um, so there's
3: a they, lot of time between uh, yeah. it happening oh, and uh, yeah. the court case.
6: Uh, that's right. It was, and there was a number of um, court appearances well. The, the system is very very slow. Yeah. So. Um, my lawyer and my supporters, having looked at the video and all that, were basically very confident of uh, going into the trial because it was obvious that uh, I was the one attacked and there, was, uh, there were a lot of people in there. And so my lawyer said, look, there's, even if you um, look at it from a, from a different point of view, there's doubt about who started it. Uh, I actually went to the aid of a, of a comrade who was being beaten up so I said, "Look, that's all self defense So my uh, uh, case and
3: was like, and they took a photograph of your injuries.
6: That's right. That's yeah, right. that's so normal injuries. procedure.
3: Yeah, and yeah, yeah, I, so. I actually remember seeing it on the news, mainstream news, and being mm. horrified. But I mean, I, I my reaction was that you were beaten up.
6: Uh, well, yes, that's that's, but, that's correct. Know. Um, so the videos are online. People can, um, can see it. Um, so we went into the court case. The interesting thing in the court case, it lasted a day. The police um, uh, produced two witnesses, uh, both far-right um, uh, people. Uh, one of them was the guy who actually assaulted me. Um, another guy was actually someone who stood for Fraser Anning's party. And they basically said they were just um, normal people. They were horrified and terrified by us, and that we attacked them. And they were just normal Australians, basically. Um, so the um, the magistrate, when uh, she returned the um, the her decision, was that um, even though there was a, a doubt, um, she basically said there was a lot of doubt and who done it, and blah blah blah. She basically said that, um, she found, um, that all the charges were proven. Um, uh, and so I was, um, so all the charges were proven, the two assaults, the affray and the, um, the, um, rioting behavior. I was fortunately given a, uh, a, um, non-conviction and, and a $2,000, um, $2,000 fine. But the interesting thing that um, we were all shocked by it, uh, my lawyer, myself, and you know, and my supporters, and um, I was I was able to um, take it to appeals at the county court, but I've actually decided after much uh, discussion with the you, lawyer. You, you, you,
3: we, before we go into that, you yeah. were, you pointed out that uh, you had a. I mean, we know you, Pierre. We, we like you, and we, we know you're an upstanding guy. And uh, you were able to take in some uh, references, which is one of the character references, which is one of the procedures that you take when you go to court uh, to say that you are an upstanding mm. guy. And what did the magistrate say about uh, those particular references?
6: Well, look, that was, that's where it really became a bit bizarre because I think the magistrate, this is the interpretation of myself and other people really got stuck on the issue that one of the far-right people said that he was terrified. She actually mentioned mm-hmm. about the word terrified and, and, and how scary it was all and how much pressure it puts on the police. Um, um, and so... And actually, that's a, that's, an, that's a very important point that I'll get to it because of the, of the laws that, as they stand. But when she read my character references and found out that I'm a fairly normal person, um, she basically said, oh, I'm very conflicted and contradictory now because obviously she must have thought, look, I've got no idea what she must have thought. I can only assume that um, she... I don't think she had had any understanding of what the demonstration was about or how these demonstrations happen or about the the politics and the tactics of, of the far right. Yeah, yeah, and many high. of the people
3: who are listening today, including myself, will know exactly what it's like to be at one of these events.
6: Mm. Uh, that's, that's right. So, um, so, and the interesting thing is when we decided whether, at, at, initially we said, oh, look, we're going to appeal, this is terrible, you know, it's a classic case of uh, self-defense and I still maintain this interpretation. But what we've seen is that over the last few years, this government has really cra- has got a law and order agenda. Yeah. And what they've done is they have given directions to the magistrate and judges um, to um, uh, basically convict more people and basically have lowered the bar for um, uh, charges like a So basically, the reason I'm not going to the county court is that even though I might be found, uh, I might be able to prove that I wasn't the one that um, I was assaulted, um, that I wasn't the one doing the assault and I was in self-defence, I could still be proven guilty of a fray, which is the most um, uh, serious charge, just because I was in there with other people and there was a a fight.
3: No, but as you've said, the, the definition is... Could be uh, being part of a melee, and or by my actions, in inverted commas, frightening people.
6: That's right, and that's how unspecific, how inspecific, ambiguous.
3: That's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Frightened.
6: That's correct. Unbelievable. And the person doesn't even have to be there. That's right. And frightened.
3: I mean, you see, the law is all based on the notion of a normal person's reactions, a reasonable person, reasonable person's reactions. I mean, for goodness' sake, frightened.
6: That that. that, That's right. So basically, really, the the point that uh, to me there were two points uh, from all this. One was that the, um, the, obviously the police, because I do have a background in labour organising, human rights and anti-racism, knew who I was. Um, And I believe that they went after me and they, I mean, they used two fascists to... to um, as witnesses against me but also i think then the all the law and order agenda now you know they're filling up our prisons we can actually see how these are, can easily be used against us and well certainly used against working class um people all around you know throughout uh, the last few months the last the last years and it really puts question marks on and puts um, some boundaries and some real issues about how we actually going to um, organise on the street if it makes it really, really difficult to have any ability to defend ourselves or to organise ourselves on the street against any attack.
3: Yeah, because as you say, the process, you could go back to an appeal because you feel personally aggrieved, but the potential outcomes uh you could get five years' jail for a fray, and of course people feel that uh, uh you know that uh, idea that someone's been assaulted uh, you know that what what people are conjuring up in their minds when they're talking about uh, you as a frightening person is not what's actually happening on the ground.
6: And look, and you know, unfortunately, that's what um, I have to live with. But um, you know, the the court system are what the courts are, and they basically yeah. enforce the laws of as we of, as we know of the economic and political system that's very unjust. So you're really uh, saying
3: it's political, and uh, we're going down a very rocky road in uh, regards to the supposed laws that are trying to keep law and order uh, a lead on law and order.
6: Well, that's right. The law and order agenda really is an anti-working class agenda. I mean, that that uh, you know I'm sure you've talked about it uh, at other times because it's the, the laws are really used uh, against uh, the working class and against any left wing activist. And um, I think my case is just um, just another example of, of, of this. And certainly, I know that uh, I've talked a lot with um, labour activists and anti racist activists that people are sort of thinking about it and, and working out how we go in, in the future and how we, we can protect ourselves better.
3: Now, it's a, it, interestingly enough, it, uh, it's an anniversary of a, a very tragic uh, event that happened in America a long time ago about two uh, uh, anarchist uh, labour organisers who were falsely. Oh,
6: and Vanzetti, really?
3: Yes, it is. It's the anniversary around this period when they were executed for uh, under false allegations, and uh, yes, uh, uh, and you know it's sort of uh, similar in this sort of way. Uh, you actually have per- it has personal ramifications for you, of course, as a person uh, and as an activist.
6: That's right, that's right. You know, it will affect uh, my work prospects. It will certainly affect how uh, I'm able to do my labour and um, uh, human rights and and anti-racism activities. So, uh, you know, I have to take it on board as well and and see um, how it it happens. But, you know, I I sort of very much see it as, you know, I don't want to compare in any way... No, no, uh, no, but it's
3: it's got the same kernel of... um, it's the same, kernel, and uh, and you also remain... Anybody who's had violence uh, inflicted upon them will know that there is a lasting effect of anger mm-hmm. and upset from this sort of thing. It, it really makes you reassess the world around you. Uh,
6: well, yeah, look, and, and that's... I mean, you sort of know, know these things. Like, I've actually done a lot of international solidarity as well, and, you know, like I was on the... Um, I've, um, supported and, and campaigned for this, uh, labor activist in Thailand, uh, this guy, Somyot, who was actually jailed and spent seven years yeah. for basically some, for something that someone else wrote. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, so I'm very well aware of how the system works. And in some ways it was my time to get the short end of, of the stick or however you, you say it. And, um. So it's it's just really an example of, of what happens, and like you said, I've just got to uh, ground myself again, and you know, and, and assess it um, how I go from here. But I hope that you know it also serves uh, as an example to a lot of activists out there that the you know that the police is not neutral, that the courts are not neutral; they all serve a political economic system that's highly hierarchical and highly unjust and you know you just have to look at how indigenous people are treated in this country to see that um uh you know justice is really not there for them
3: you've got a two thousand dollar fine but there are defense the solidarity and defense fund as well as the international anti-fascist defense fund can you tell our listeners how they can contribute
6: Yep, sure. Look, and if you like to contribute um, uh, to to my fine, that'd be fantastic, but I would actually say it's, it's not just me. Again, it's not just an individual case. This hasn't happened a, in a vacuum, but there are... So there is actually um, two funds um, that actually um, uh, contribute and support people like me to pay these fines, um, and I can tell you that... Um, They've actually contributed to a number of people, especially from the Kensington Estate, which were also arrested on on that day back in December 2017 to pay for their legal fees. Um, So one is the Solidarity and Defence Fund Australia, so Solidarity and Defence Fund Australia, or the International Anti-Fascist Defence Fund, so the International Anti-Fascist Defence Fund. So just look them up, and you can contribute money there. And uh, maybe Annie and Rebecca, you can put her on your um, on your program podcast. We as well. certainly
3: will. Thank All you very right. much for spending some time with us, Pierre.
6: All right, no worries. Thanks a lot, and have a good day. More crisis,
1: so
5: we've got to come.
4: It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the crossroads, time for an independent foreign policy held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australian military exercises for war on China. Discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter.
3: And you're on solidarity breakfast with Annie and Rebecca. You know what happened yesterday? I uh, went from 3CR down into the city because I was going home for a while, and uh, it, a really weird thing happened. It was uh, somewhere around 2:30 or something like that. You know, a non-time, and uh, the tram goes into the to uh, Swanston Street, and uh, we all get told, and then there's all these police all mm. over the place. So there's about six. Cops on horses lined up. Uh, There's um, a whole, uh, there's at least two very large, uh, relatively large um, black vans with public order response team on them. There was a, quite a few police around the place and uh, the public order response people have now got black uniforms with uh, red uh, t- tags on them saying 401. And I started to think, what, what's four They're all mm. called 401, so it's not an identifier, a personal identifier. It's uh, So it's a sewn-on patch. It's red and it's got 401 on it and it's got... Uh, 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 public re- response, uh, a pub- or public order re- response. And um, and I started to think a bit solzhenitsyn you know, that idea that you go into a room and you never come out, you know, yeah. whatever 401 is. Anyway, we all had to walk uh, from Collins Street down to the Arts Centre because no no trams were going to go because there was a demonstration that was going to happen, right, Friday. So we're all trudging down there and everything's being reorganized and all this sort of stuff for the demonstration um when i came back at about um uh 3:30 that all that I don't know what this demonstration was supposed to be. I think it was more about uh, everybody realising that the police were very important.
7: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> An Urtzat <that> demonstration. Uncertain. <sighs> I did hear people uh, demonstrating on the crest of the hill. Uh, on uh, Collins Street, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, head offices for people yes. like BHP and stuff like that, mm. and people were calling out relatively loudly that they should be ashamed of themselves, which you know I could hardly could hardly not agree with. But I didn't couldn't get a look at what they were doing. I think it might have been cl- and uh, climate change. But, yeah, you know,
7: there's uh, seed mob have been doing anti-fracking
3: well, there um, you go. Protests against yeah. Origin Energy. Yeah, Every well, Friday. So, yeah. so that's that what it will it, be. Yeah. But but as to why the entire central mm. city area had to be shut, told, down. shut down and uh, the police do a show of force, mm. uh, it, I think this is another element that people should be looking at where... You know, that notion that if you're going to arm people and use a whole lot of public money to create the, these yep. things, then they have to be looking as if they're doing something. Yes, exactly. Anyway, that was my experience of an UTSAT, uh demonstration. It was a police event. You know, yeah, Horses and all. A show of force. A show of force. Anyway... Moving right along on Solidarity Breakfast here, uh, I had a chat with a fellow called Steve Amos. Now, Steve Amos has made this film called uh, Defend, Conserve, Protect, and it is a a film about the Sea Shepherd, but it's not about the Sea Shepherd. You're actually on the ships when they actually do uh, an action Mm. in Antarctica in the... uh, In the sanctuary. So I thought it would be worthwhile because it's going to open on the 25th. And uh, if you want to, one, see the environment down there, which is just amazing, but also get an idea of what it's like for these people who are actually defending the whales and Mm. also against uh, a commercial interest that uh, is actually poaching poaching in a sanctuary, yep. <laughs> uh, then uh, it, it's worthwhile. So here's a taster, a little chat with uh, the filmmaker. All right. oh, thanks for uh, coming and talking to us about your new film, Defend, Conserve and Protect, which uh, you've... How long have you been spending writing, directing and producing this film?
8: Well, I've, I've spent about maybe four years on this now, yeah. Maybe yes. a little over four years.
3: Okay. And yeah. uh, it's all about... Uh, the high seas and Antarctic, Antarctica, and uh, defending Wales. You're on on the ship with the the uh, people from the Sea Shepherd. Uh, they've, in fact, they've got about four ships, haven't they?
8: They have got four ships, and uh, actually I wasn't on the on the campaign, so... Uh, oh, so th- was, this I, footage
3: came from the uh, GoPros?
8: So they were, yeah, they'd, they'd shot a whole lot of footage. So I'd been working a little bit with Sue Shepard, making you know some kind of commercials, you know, some videos, just trying to give back a little bit. And they'd, for a long time, wanted to make an Australian documentary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they had all this campaign footage, and they didn't really know what to do with it. Okay. And then you might, you know, I had a background in film and TV, and so I ended up taking everything and then shooting a whole bunch of additional footage, and then spending a good two and a half years cutting it all together because it was thousands of hours of footage. Oh, wow, it was that's a lot amazing! Of footage. Yeah.
3: And I guess uh, the interview uh, interviews that you've uh, used, uh, you would have constructed those after the event, really.
8: Yep, th- that's right. Yeah, so about I would say about half the interviews were shot. You know, some of them them have been shot on campaign, yeah, and the other half and they've done that themselves. That's right, and then the other half was shot. uh, You know, I shot over the course of you know the last few years. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, Yeah. and and it's got a a very strong feeling of passing the baton, isn't it? Like uh, the original founder of uh, of um, Sea Shepherd, the uh, he is making sure that people realise that there's uh, life in this movement.
8: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, you know, Paul Watson's a really interesting character. You know, he co-founded Greenpeace with Robert Hunter. And when Paul got too radical for the organisation, they, they kicked him out of Greenpeace. <laughs> and he went off and set up Sea Shepherd, you know, the Marine Conservation Group. So, um, and, uh, you know, throughout Paul's career, you know, I mean, he. I think at that point in time he was, um, when I was uh, filming this, He was confined to France. He couldn't leave France at that point in time. Because he had orders against him. He had orders against him. He would have been arrested by Interpol. Oh, um, on a real trumped-up charge. I mean, it's subsequently been dropped. But at that point in time, I had to actually go to France to interview Paul because uh, he, he couldn't leave the country. So, um, And, of course, he couldn't be on this particular campaign as well. So, you know, Peter Hammerstead Captain Peter Hammerstead
3: Very young fellow, really.
8: Really I think amazing. I mean, 28 years old. Yeah, and very level-headed. Taking command of that, that ship, one of the key ships in the, in the fleet for this campaign. I mean, brilliant job, you know, and uh, quite an amazing individual.
3: The um whole film now that I know that uh uh they were actually in charge of the shoot and I- I've interviewed some people who rode across the Atlantic from yep. America to uh England yep. and they use GoPros, yep. uh the yep. sa- the filmmaker. Did GoPros as well. It's an amazing piece of technology, isn't
8: it? Oh, GoPro, GoPros are amazing. I mean, we had um, other cameras. Um, I did a bit of additional shooting on, on ships the shore well. and, um, and 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 some ship work. But uh, but uh, you know, there's a lot of volunteer camera people. A lot of people that had to be trained up at the last minute. Um, so you know, each ship had a different level of you know professionalism. I mean, everyone was dedicated and was shooting, but some ships were kind of shot a little bit better than, than others, you know, and uh, so, you know, when I was cutting this together, you, you tended to focus on the footage that was kind of working. And uh, Well, yeah, of course. Uh, so, the, you know, the Bob Barker, the ship, the Bob Barker, you know, Peter Hammerstead really was the key ship and, you know, we're fortunate that the footage on that was was, it was pretty well shot footage as well. Oh, how lucky yeah, is yeah, that? Yeah, because
3: yeah. Uh, people have to go and see this film because it's it really is gripping.
8: Yeah, 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 it yeah. really
3: is gripping. These people are putting their lives on the line. Uh, and, I mean, you, you know, if you donate money and uh, you are aware of the important work that uh, the Sea Shepherd does, I mean, you'd be blind and deaf if you didn't, especially yeah. if you're watching, uh, listening to a 3CR interview. Um, now, uh, what was really compelling to me was actually being on board and seeing what they actually do.
8: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary, you know, and um, I mean, not all, not all young people, you know, the, no. the age group's quite broad, um, you know, the experience is quite broad, but to, you know, kind of set out from home and, you know, be three, four months at sea, maybe longer, you know, um, and it's quite, you know, at rough seas, you know, uh, it's quite an extraordinary thing to do. You know, well, it's um,
3: taking people out of their comfort space, that's for sure.
8: Absolutely, and, you know, and the film for me, you know, it's not... I mean, it's about whaling, anti-whaling. You know, uh, it's it's you know obviously about saving species and things like that. But you know, the power of the film comes from it being told from an activist's point of view, and you know, for me that that's what the film is, and it, it's it, it's a kind of epitomises what we all can do and should be doing, particularly nowadays. Yeah, well, it's um, actually
3: yeah, quite yeah. extraordinary to think yeah. that uh, they've garnered this amount of capital in order to have these ships that are going toe-to-toe yeah. against these corporate interests.
8: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'll
3: tell you the other thing that's amazing about this film, and it's the environment. The whole look of uh, Antarctica is uh, breathtaking.
8: Yeah, it's an extraordinary place. You know, it's beautiful, you know, it's hostile. Well, I think that's one of the things the film tr- pushes is that, you know, that's that's not our environment, you know, humans aren't designed to be down there no. at all, you know. And uh and that's one of the ideas of the film is that, you know, we all, we're all adapted, you know, uh to our to our particular, you know, place on the earth and uh and you know, have to have um, you know, Japanese Japanese whaling fleet down there, you know, openly harvesting whales and uh it's it's it, you know it's just a, something that shouldn't be they shouldn't be there. You know? No,
3: no, and yeah. it's really interesting because yeah. they've now decided to uh, throw cast off their mm. false uh, scientific uh, guys, and they're just going out for the kill now. But yeah. yeah. Obviously, the right wing notions of the international uh, po- politic is uh, opening the yeah. doors for them.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: But uh, interestingly enough, the, that was one of the key elements of this. Uh, if Sea Shepherd wasn't there, the, the uh, reserve – because these people that were – they are actually hunting in a, uh, a sanctuary.
8: It's a sanctuary, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's illegal.
3: They yeah. are the ones who are illegal.
8: That's right. And even the uh, the tanker in the film, you know, I mean, these, ship, these Japanese ships need refuelling. Yeah. So these giant tankers that come down from Indonesia – i mean they they shouldn 't be coming down that far south either, so they're, they're you know they 're also there illegally i mean there's so, just so you I mean, it's it's it 's like the wild west yeah know.
3: yeah they 're sticking their fingers up
8: yeah yeah i mean you 've got on you know even on board the japanese ships you 've got you know uh, a lot of people that are indebted to the uh, yakuza that are that are there kind of enslaved. Um, you know, there was uh, on the the uh, the fuel ships, the refueling ships from Indonesia. There was slave labor. You know, there was quite often there were bottles. You know, kind of thrown over the side with notes in it saying, "We're being held captive. Can you please get us off this ship?" You know. Oh my goodness! And that's you know, that was a whole other kind of story. But uh, but yeah, it's it's like the wild west out there on the the high seas.
3: How grim is that? Mm. Uh, the uh, uh, the um. Filming is quite amazing and the uh, what's actually being shown is quite amazing but like you said there was a thousand hours of footage yep. how did you manage to bring it down into a piece
8: look it was tricky so I went I, so I I, I kind of likened it like my model was kind of grizzly man I don't know if you've ever seen yeah it, yeah' you've a Huss-Hog's Grizzly man you've got this existing footage and then you go well how are you going to put it together? And Especially what,
3: with its dark end.
8: Absolutely. And, you know, what can you add to it to kind of get it to work? And um, so it was a real editorial challenge to, to get this to work because there was just so much footage. You know, that we, there was proper cameras, but there was also, you know, dozens of GoPros, you know. And with all documentaries, you know, you don't want to turn the camera off. You know, you don't know what's about to happen. So the cameras are rolling. You know, you've got 10 cameras uh, minimum on, on each vessel plus GoPro. So you end up with thousands of hours of footage. And, we, you know, I ended up with about 60 terabytes of, of data, which the computers were struggling with. So And, you know, they were all on old C drives as well that had been out at sea. So they were all making noises and groaning away. And it was like we had to get the data off the hard drives before mm. they all crashed because it was the only copy as yeah. well. Uh, it took a lot of work, just assembling all the footage too. Finding it across the world, you know, drives were you know in the US and Europe, and the logistics, just the logistics of getting the drives together, then getting all the data offloaded, uh, and then I decided that to to do an assembly edit. So usually, an assembly edit of a feature is you know it might run through. You know.
3: Did you did you write a script? Did I you? haven't wrote a
8: script yeah i i, I, was, I was, sort was trying an, to f- an outline yeah well it was a, no it was a full script that we wrote. I was trying okay. to find my way into the material and try and figure out the sequences and how best to construct it so
3: and c- constructing a narrative
8: yeah so it's it's it really kind of made it almost like a narrative you know drama feature mm-hmm. in, in in a structural sense, and it's uh, one
3: of the reasons why it works
8: yeah thank you and uh but you know, part of that came from writing the script, and even though most of that ended up getting discarded, uh, the you know, like the Dan Aykroyd narration, you know, the voice of the whale mm-hmm. kept you know in. So that was that was something that came out. But
3: there was more stuff than that, was it? There?
8: there was, in and you know, I, I don't think that dialogue from for Dan would have necessarily been written if I had a, approached it a different way.
3: Interspersed uh, with the action and the build-up are, are pieces of uh, footage of. Uh, the whales, the whales are represented. They're not lost. They're, they're not forgotten. So they're gambling around under the sea and Dan Aykroyd is their voice effectively.
8: How did that come up? Dan's a big environmentalist and a big mm. fan of Sea Shepherd, big supporter. But you know, look, the voiceover itself came out of me writing it as a feature, narrative feature first. Mm. Um, so that, that that evolved from, from there and mm. something I kind of kept for the documentary. Um, uh, in term, I mean, what I really wanted to do without getting too anthropomorphic, although yeah, obviously yeah, I mean, we did the, that. But the, the,
3: the, exactly right. Yeah, that, yeah. that was the gamble.
8: Yeah. And, you know, I just, I mean, you know, whales are voiceless, but they they're you know, got the largest brains on the planet. You know, whales have got really high and social – you know, and they're social creatures like us and mm. uh, and I really wanted yeah. to – and they're voiceless. Yeah, they've got family structures like us. Mm. And so, you know, Dan ends up speaking does, – does this kind of generic voice of the whales and speaks on behalf of the whales, which, you know uh, – I, I, it's kind of daggy but it's kind of it's kind of daggy but it really does give the audience i think this emotional connection yeah, to yeah. them i mean the whole point really is i really wanted to move people with the film you know it's just i mean you know there's lots of excellent documentaries and um you know i remember growing up and you'd leave a film and you'd be walking out really motivated and really uplifted mm. like really uplifted i yeah, remember yeah, yeah. films you when know, i was growing up and I, I there's kind of less and less of that at the you know and I really wanted to make a film where you exited the cinema and you really felt upbeat and that you could kind of go out and take on the world, you know, and uh, and that's what this is. You know, it's 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 meant to be an inspirational piece, particularly for the, you know, younger generation to motivate them and to, you know, that they, they can step out of their comfort zone and go out into the world and, you know, make some kind of, you know, fundamental change. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we we know how bad things are, you know, environmentally and, uh you know, I and this is, you know, this is what I can do. You know, it's it's. Yeah, I've been making films all my life, and um, I, I guess if I am going to do something, this is this is, makes the most logical, you know, it's the most logical thing to do is to make a film.
3: How did you get the funds for it? Was that an internal thing, or was that uh, other people helped? Or so what? I put
8: I put quite a substantial amount of money into it through my company. Yeah. Um, I ended up running a global. Um, uh, crowdfunding mm-hmm. on it, which was really successful. Oh, so we raised quite a bit of money from that, and, and uh, ran that through Sea Shepherd kind of social media. So it was a lot of Sea Shepherd supporters that got involved. Um, we ended up with seven hundred, you know, uh, donors, mm-hmm. and you know, so they've all received their perks now, and uh, you know, I think they've really liked the film. You know, oh the, good. Yeah, great, yeah, getting yeah. some really good messages on online. So
3: oh, that's great. So has it been opening all over the world?
8: Uh, so we did um, – so it won the um, the largest uh, documentary film festival in um, North America. That
3: must have been so, so, so swell.
8: It was great, yeah. So it won that earlier in the year. Yes. And my focus has always been uh, – yeah, so it's not a couple of festivals, but my focus has always been getting it, getting it in the cinemas and getting it under – it's not not even so much um, – you know, I wanted it to broaden beyond Sea Shepherd and beyond yes. activists and you know people that are – you know that I already understand. I wanted to yeah. f- take in a new audience, and I think to do that, it was important for me to take it to cinemas. Yes, and uh, which we're doing. You know, it comes out in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've done just had some really successful advanced screenings, which have gone really well, and you know, people are leaving in tears. I mean, they're really genuinely moved, and um, which is really, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy it's connecting with people. You know? yeah, uh, yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it actually um, is starting at Nova on July the 25th. And I suppose in other good cinemas that are um, uh, uh, wise enough to have it on their screens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's
8: right.
3: Thanks for coming and talking to me.
8: Thanks, Annie. Thank you. Bye.
4: Don't panic. There is a Planet B. Come along to a sparkling night of progressive comedy at Green Left Weekly's annual comedy debate. Join Masters of Ceremonies, Rod Quantock, with Sean Bedlam, Duff, Fiona Scott Norman, Hell Child, Kirsty Mack, and Tom Tanuki. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 regular, $22 low-waged, and $12 concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Friday the 26th of July, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Don't panic, there is a Planet B, a fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential. Phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com forward slash BDHTX. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter.
3: And we're back. This is Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca. And on the line we've got the wonderful Lou Wheeler from Fair Go for Pensioners. Hi, Lou. Hi,
9: Rebecca, how are you?
3: Yeah, good.
7: Uh, and yeah, could you tell us uh, you had a conference um, recently, uh, a one-day conference, and. Um, Yeah, could you tell us a bit about that? I I wasn't able to be there, so can you tell us just a quick rundown of what what happened on the day?
9: Absolutely. Sorry you couldn't be there. We had um, over 85 people attending from a diversity of groups and individuals, so we had community representatives, union faith groups and peace groups, so really, um, yeah, marvellous spread of diverse people in attendance, We had um, Rob Watts, who is Professor of Social Policy at uh, RMIT University, provided the overview um, and he had pointed out that uh, neoliberal policies have been um, uh, pursued by um, all Australian governments over the past 40 years. Um, And... um, really, and they're being um, being rolled out continually now and seeping into wider areas and particularly in areas of social policy. Um, What has been the outcome of that over those years? What's actually happening as a result of those policies? um, As distinct from the spin and the marketing of everything's fabulous and it's all very wealthy and fine and, you know, we really are in good shape. The actual outcomes are that there's increasing income and wealth inequality. Uh, There's a disintegration of labour. We're turning away from the commitment to full employment. There's a decline of the union movement, structural shifts, major structural shifts in the economy. Um, He gave the example of um, the um, increased acceleration of the derivatives market and the stunning... um, fact that he gave was that the wealth of that market the value of it um is 30 times greater than the world's value um and it's owned by five banks like it was just the most breathtaking figure
3: so it's like gambling Uh, really (laughs) <laughs> well, on yes. on, uh, on no, no value at all.
9: Mm. Absol- well, no, because it's producing nothing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the point that uh, also that he was making it was totally breathtaking. Um, and he also t- talked about um, the claims around the superiority of the market in all things. Yeah. So the market does it better. Um, and then another consequence of that of course is that uh, for those who are left behind with the structural problems which are totally denied by neoliberals um, is that punitive and stigmatising treatment, and particularly of the unemployed, but for all uh, recipients of social welfare. Um, or, or any
3: complainer, anybody who well, points out that uh, the king has no clothes, the emperor oh, has absolutely. no clothes.
9: Yes, that's right. We'll go after you as well. Um, so, and he, he did this under the head the three questions of, you know, what's actually happening, um, how do we understand what's happening, and then how might we do it better? and 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 these themes were picked up by various um, panelists and another speaker throughout the day and um he uh, professor watts went on to say that australians are caught up in a dramatic economic and technological revolution and the evolution of new forms of capital. So the derivatives form, um, the surveillance form, and pointed to Facebook, you know, that experience of uh, the collapse of the... ..between the distinction between public and private and the fact of that social engineering where people can our profiles can be totally known to all of our habits, which, you know, it really is totally scary. Um, And that that's sort of driving a lot of policy developments um the government is likely to be digitalised by the year twenty twenty five. So um, you know, that again, given how difficult it is to ever talk to anyone, to hold anyone to account, then that's that's itself going to escalate. So these Sorry, are Do you mind
7: if I just uh, uh push in there and yeah, sure. <laughs> ask what, what do you mean by the the government is um digitised?
9: Well, that um, or everything will be um, through. Um, you know, you'll have to go onto the internet to do business with um, with the government. So the areas that aren't now, um, you know, uh, hooked into those automated systems will be by yeah. um, 2025. So it just makes it so much more difficult uh, for those of us who um, have lots of dealings with Centrelink. We know what the problems are. I, in fact, spent an hour yesterday just trying to report um, a, a particular thing and it just took forever because it just um, is so difficult. There's only these set mem- menus <laughs> yes. you know, that you can do this, this or this, but you can't do that and you can't get to talk to anyone. Uh, very difficult. I mean, you will after a very long time, as I say. I like yep. finally got to talk to someone. It's so hideous. That's what it's I mean it's about totally
3: that. hideous. Mm. And the thing that there was a real uh, uh, pressure point uh, around um, the federal government pushing local governments to divest themselves of aged care support services.
9: That's exactly right. And we had uh, two people. Um, speaking about that, uh, uh, Rhonda Held from the Council of, uh, of Ageing um, you know, spoke um, of some of the findings that are coming out of the Royal Commission into aged care quality and services uh, and uh, quality and care, and she uh, spoke about the fact that um, in terms of the home care packages, there's 128,000 people waiting for those packages now, and 53 of those people die per month while they're waiting so the backlog you know the there's just so many problems with the my age care, and I mean, there we are with the wording, um, the uh, uh, the distortion in wording my age care. It's absolutely nothing to do with my age care. Yeah, it's a disaster. Um, and All
3: words, no action. Yeah. Well, that's and, right. And, and really big outcome, of, yes. negative outcomes for real people.
9: Well, that's exactly right, and. Um, Robin Vogt, um, she is the convener of a group called Does Council Care? And that's a non-aligned activist group set up to try and convince Darabin Council to retain their excellent home and community care program where the staff are very well trained, they're well paid and they have been providing this fantastic service for years and years and that is going to... Roll over into private for business, and these are massive corporations like Booper tendering, like Healthscope tendering, and they're tendering it for profit. Yeah, now, this All is this really
3: money. interesting because we're going to follow up uh, Robin Vote, and because uh, yeah, because what she points out and what you're saying, it, people feel helpless that there's nothing they can do about this rollout, uh, but in actual fact. The uh, it, the what people can do is what people should be doing, and what Robin Vote is doing, which is saying to her council, "Please explain."
9: And <laughs> it's having right. an effect. That's exactly right. And of course, that then gets to Rob Watch's third question: is what we can we do about it? And. Uh, Robin was pointing out, this is what we're doing about it. You can take action. The last thing you cannot be doing at the moment is not act and join with others and get things going. And in terms of home and community care, it's at local government level and pressure needs to be put on them. And uh, they're doing just that. And, um, yes, so we're also hoping that that's going to extend into Moreland and um, there might be other things um, underway there as well. She was
3: saying something very interesting to me, that actually the councillors that she thought would have a clear perspective on uh, the issues for people on the ground, the Greens councillors in Darabin actually were quite happy with the idea of them Uh, not being in um, the aged care support service area because it's not core business. Isn't that a great Mm. word? Not core business. What is core business of councils? (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
9: Well, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, can I just I point out, I think
7: uh, yes. you were saying before about the digitisation, but I think that's one thing at least about uh, the local government and councils that we can still actually find someone to talk to and mm. actually like um, go to council meetings and, and raise questions and stuff, which is, yeah, maybe that's well, the way to go to actually... Uh, raising the issue. Like, well, like well, picking yeah, the a other, thing that yeah. can actually have an yeah. effect on
9: it. Sorry. Sorry. But it's not only local council. Um, you can go to your electoral office, your yeah. state fed, and federal politicians, their local office, yes. and you can go in and you can ask for explanations. Mm-hmm. And if they won't come and talk to you, you can demonstrate. You can march down the street, let people know. The best thing we can be doing at the moment is really start hammering at each of these levels to say, We are not happy. We want explanations. We can't get it because you can only talk to, you know, well, I'm calling them robots, but the automated um, Mm -hmm. messages that come at you um, when you try and ring up and and find the answers to things. So uh, that was really such a strong point. And Rob was saying, look... It can start around the kitchen table, start talking to people, get your neighbours around the table, go out onto the street, start talking to people. So step by step, start building up this momentum, get the information, like we had information kits there with quite a bit of information about what's going on, about the really um, toxic messaging that... um, Annie, in fact, um, mm. talked about um, and, and she called it in terms of the relation between capital and labour, the phoney jargon that um, hides coercive labour, um, and uh, the whole notion of the gig economy, so that you only get work by the task, um, and you know, but this sort of fancy gig economy that you know somehow or another you're related to a rock concert, when in fact it's just. You can sit in the gutter. Yeah, it's That's 18th century slave labour. That's mm. <laughs> exactly right. And uh, uh, on our corner, we have people sitting outside of um, um, a couple of the restaurants waiting in the gutter. All yeah. weather. All, All weather.
3: weather. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've seen them too. And it's yeah. raining and it's cold. Yes, shocking. Yeah, those Absolutely poor
9: Shocking. Yeah, it is. Um, it's shocking. It's totally, totally shocking. Um, and we walk past it like we walk past people sleeping uh, in the, the
3: homeless, yeah.
9: <laughs> the homeless, the same thing. We had Jack Verdon pointing out and uh, the really new information aside um, from the fact that the public housing is actually by stealth being sold off, the land's being sold off. Public housing is becoming community housing, and they are not the same thing. Um, and and what we learnt was that um, until now, there's been something called the Public Housing Renewal Programme. Um, it's never been that, but it, at least public housing was in the title. It's now called public housing. And what the government means by the state government... Social housing. Means, yeah, social housing is community housing and public housing but the reality has been and we've been trying to get this information out for many many a long day um it's community housing that is not the same as public housing public housing has a rent to income model you cannot pay more than maximum 25 percent of your rent so that if you suddenly lose your job you get run over you're ill whatever and then, you know, your rent will be adjusted according to what your means are. Um, in community housing, it can be 30 to 35%, but you have to be eligible for Commonwealth rent assistance as well. So, um, back of the envelope stuff, it's probably around 44% in actual terms. But that's the real rent. Plus, they really don't take the most needy um, from the public housing wait list and there's 88,
3: 84,000 people on. No, the no, they target the uh, low-paid working class. That's, that's right. And that's this is why it's okay for George Columbaris not to pay their workers properly. And, and
9: really, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's what's really going on.
3: It's a closed circle. And uh, so what, what the conference is really talking about was action and that uh, the government needs to pull up its socks and people need to bring them to account.
9: That's exactly right. Yeah, and so
3: what, was, what came well, what, out of it? Like,
9: <laughs> well, yeah. what came out of it on the day was the fact that people from the floor, we had lots of time for discussion. So the comments and the discussion and the ideas came from the people who were there. And the people who were there were people who had the lived experience of doing it tough. Um, they were the experts on the day. Um, and And that was terrific. So nobody... Was better than anybody else. Everybody um, worked well together. I think probably the the heart, most heartwarming comment of the day uh, came from someone who said, "Oh, we came thinking that we'd have to sit on plastic chairs and on you know and eat sandwiches off old wooden tables, <laughs> and that was so beautiful a comment, you know, because it." There was gorgeous food. There was, you know, it was done very well. We had all sorts of uh, roving mics and, you know, everybody. Yeah, You um, did a great job,
3: Lou. You did a great job.
9: The uh, Thank you. But uh, that was just such a wonderfully touching comment. Um, and then the, it was, let's get together. And I wasn't home more than, I think, oh, a half a day when I had a phone call from someone saying, can you link me into this other person? I've got an activity I want to... You know, mm. I, mean, I need a group of activists to work with me. So networking that was, and... That was yeah. a, that. started straight away, which was terrific. Yeah. Um, people said that they would go back, they would start to work in their areas. We um, endorsed uh, the uh, resolution to support the um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart um, and that was um, endorsed um, the Trades Hall Council said they would meet with public tenants to talk about public housing um and of course, the public tenants are hoping that that means that they will get behind supporting public housing. Mm. That was another thing that came from the floor on the day uh, the marvelous idea of Annie about the uh, dictionary of jarg phony jargon so that um uh, and people by the time i i left i got all, i haven't I haven't processed it yet, but people gave me all their um, um, messages that they want changed. For instance, um, we're no longer called passengers when we use public transport. We're customers. We want to use reclaim the language, yeah. reclaim the language of citizens with rights.
3: Oh, talking about that, the, you know what the Amazon—you know—all these, all these strikes all over the world for uh, yeah, yeah. Amazon workers. You know what, Amazon's got the cheek to call their warehouses fulfillment centers. <laughs> oh
9: my god! Well, there we go.
7: <laughs> what are they fulfilling the needs uh, of the consumer? The boss to make huge
3: amounts <laughs> of money <laughs> and to screw
9: the workers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I know, isn't that just shocking? But for anybody who's listening, who wants to actually participate, and Annie, if with your approval, of course, we'll, um, we'll get that uh, the dictionary rolling in probably in two or three weeks' time. Um, so anybody who wants to help, they just go on to our um, events uh, email address.
6: Which and, is? Uh,
9: which is events FGFP Victoria at gmail.com.
7: So and events?
9: Events, F-G-F-P, Victoria, at gmail.com.
7: Yeah,
9: And I think one of the other critical things that Rob talked about, um, you know, was the crisis of democracy where only 16% of Australians trust government and the, and the majority parties to put people's interests and needs ahead of their own
7: I'm surprised so, it's that much
9: <laughs> well it's, it's a pretty shocking figure isn't it the um, and of course politicians and their hirelings really do use this language to um, to hide to uh, throw up smoke screens and to basically lie um, and so therefore, who to you, who's responsible for anything? Well, the answer is at the moment probably no one. It's up to us. Well, we have slippery to get up fish there.
3: in the running stream of life. Yes, or or
7: it's uh, you can blame it on the economy because it's just a big thing yeah, out there, there that, yeah, you the know, formless thing yeah, that you can't... Yeah, that we've handed basket. over control to. So. Yeah, yeah, and yeah,
9: yeah. I, yeah, that's right. But what the point was? Unlike Margaret Thatcher, there's no such thing as society. Yeah. Society matter. And that's what came out of this, out of it as well. It was very, very clear. Um, and what was also clear was the resounding rejection of Prime Minister Morrison's fair go if you have a go." Oh, yes.
3: oh yeah. I feel yeah, that. So, hey, you yeah, know that's oh, really yeah. funny. You know, Lou, I, I, there's a film coming out called uh, "Blinded by the Light," and it's set mm. in Thatcher's period. And in it, it's got uh, a huge poster on a billboard, and it's got Thatcher on the left of it, and it's got. Tories bringing the community together. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been from the period. Fantastic! Oh it made yeah, me almost well, got sick. I yeah, almost yeah. got sick Let in up. the theatre.
9: Well, that's exactly right, isn't it? I mean, you just well, you want to just sort of tear your hair out at it, the way in which language has been so decimated and so emptied of emptied yeah. of any content. But we're going to um, fight back. Well, that's, that was the word out of the conference as well, that we are going to work together and yeah. cooperate a lot more and that we will work jointly and we will get out and we will start those conversations from the kitchen table right up to federal government. And I think um, Rob also threw out a challenge to um, fair goes, um, Fair go for life, which is our, mm. um, you know, our motto and our explanation because it, we've got to green the fair go.
3: Yep, yep. yes. And that's uh, where the uh, youngins are leading the charge. We better oh. go now, Lou. Yeah, right. let's talk more about <laughs> that, that next time.
9: All right, fantastic. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: A weak solidarity, bricky team listener, when in a rare moment of introspection of self and nationalistic awareness, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald trampled the poor, described the state of his nation as he thought thought well well tweeted in a courageous bid to save the US of from these non-white women attempting to take over the place by getting themselves elected to Congress, terrorist-related backgrounds like Palestinian non country non-people afro american somali puerto rico and on the latter we've all heard how i like to be in america says nasty hurtful things about the greatest country ever And Donald told them to go back to where they came from, which for all but the Somali refugee is just down the road, so to speak, back to where government is a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world. Now loudly and viciously telling the people of the U.S. of the greatest and most powerful nation on earth how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? They can't leave fast enough, he added, and so they went home to their U.S. old homes. He got the state of our nation spot on. They chorused, and as an exercise in dividing his opponents his tactic worked a charm forcing democrats who considered the four women a bit too radical leaving us to ponder what they consider radical to rush to their defense and note he agreed with the inept bit so the her most gracious majesty's home country ambassador a week earlier taught him a new word Donald whipped up a Donald crowd to chant his send them home mantra, showing how intelligent the Donald crowd is, because sending them home would be to the US of, then stood back with that haughty pose, which he assumes reflects intelligence, but in fact screams vacant, then said he did not support the chart he orchestrated, so we clearly got the wrong impression, and to prove the great difficulties and responsibilities that go with being commander in chief, especially when you're military, military history is dodging it, Donald then announced the US OB had been forced to shoot down an evil Iranian drone. See when Evil Iran shot down a good US OB drone in US of the world territory over evil Iran, it proved just how evil Evil Iran was. And when good US of the world shot down evil, uh, an evil, evil Iran drone over US of territory just off the coast of evil Iran, it also proves how evil, evil Iran is. Meanwhile, our big supremo scuttlebemor last sun was a bundle of shaking excitement after Donald invited him to a feed of hot dogs and a chat about supporting us of invasions of evil China and evil Iran, which shouldn't take much persuading cause Scuttlebeam has already declared we have an obligation to invade Iran if the us of does so presumably evil Iran must be posing a major security threat to true blue diversion. I say a feed of hot dogs because when former US of Big Supremo George, George W. bashed the workers in fight of the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo here back in those dark ages to lunch at the ranch, he fed him hot dogs. And I thought, maybe he doesn't like him after all. After all, who could? And maybe he's trying to kill him. D- did George W. also eat the hot dogs? The mysterious bundles of salt, fat, sugar, and God knows what else. Anyway, Scuttledem shook with excitement and told us yet again just what close, 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 warm, warm, warm friends we are, and how important is the US Obs role in maintaining peace by sending its trained killers all over the world, all over the US of the world, and Socialist Party Supremo and would be big Supremo, Anthony Albinouzi, showed why it's So important to have a left socialist big supremo by wishing Scuttlebem well and iterating his comments about our close relationship with the world's biggest war criminal. Sorry, force for peace, enforcer of peace. And Donald wants a few tips from Scuttlebem about how a committed Christian treats refugees because he admires our policy. Although in fairness, he, he's not doing a bad job of it on the Mexican border where Donald's outsider Mike Dollars and Pence praised the enforcers for the way they were treating these separated children, all of whom assured him in front of the enforcers they were being treated well. And so the week that was, asked scuttle them just how Donald delivered the big exciting invite. Well, he rang and snapped, get here. Yes, it's such a warm and meaningful two-way relationship, and of course, if the USOV did invade evil Iran, True Blue Aussie would be threatened because of the role of Pine Gap, which shows just how evil evil Iran is. On threats, our number one train killer, General Angus C- uh, Campbell-Dust, he's the bloke who used to stand next to the Minister for Concentration Camp's razor wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, and nod wisely about how we were sending these no-proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people, many fleeing our train killers, back to where they came from. And when he did open his mouth, it was to tell us he couldn't tell us anything for security reasons. Anyway, Angus just made have had a conversion on the road to Damascus, or more likely Tehran, over climate change, which the government he serves so subserviently knows doesn't even exist. But Angus warned we should do more because climate change, if there is such a thing, posed a threat to Troubluwazi. So he's realised climate change is a threat to our survival, I hear. Well, no, no. No, Angus warns that as Pacific Islands are vacated by their populations as they become unlivable, then evil China might move in and occupy them, and true Blue should be prepared to confront this threat. We should support our Pacific neighbours, although Angus and his masters obviously haven't quite twigged that it's just possible we could support our Pacific neighbours much, much more by preventing them sinking in the first place. As a by-the-by, if climate change is crap, just how do Scuttle them and the team explain why our Pacific neighbours are disappearing into the briny? Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist explains it by informing us the Pacific Islands are in fact growing, getting bigger, rising, so obviously it must be that the sea is rising a lot faster like the cost of repairing the damage caused by privatising the building surveyor and building approval processes that used to be performed by the inefficient bloated hand of the public sector resulting in the need for billions in compensation and thank goodness here in Victoria our government is proving the inefficient bloated hand does have some role in all this by forking out 600 million of our hard earned to compensate those affected which leads us to the obvious question, why should the public purse be responsible for their problems? Uh, uh, How come the privatised building approval lot and the developers and the builders shouldn't meet these costs? Obviously not, because they're all asking for government compensation as well, and a representative of the building approval lot said not only should the government sort out their insurance problems caused by their approval problems, but now the cut is out of the bag, so to speak, it would be impossible to renationalise the industry. Let the inefficient bloated hand do what it did so inefficiently for eons. That argument's about as reliable as their approvals, Also reliable, big corporate practitioner Graham Slamuol, who once recommended we close almost every public hospital in Melbourne, has done this report in which, surprise, surprise, he recommends the government have the power to appoint superannuation fund directors wonder who that's aimed at? It can't be the evil unions, because big economic guru Josh Frydeb Icebergs immediately said he would adopt the report, and he loves evil unions. And also, also reliable, we can guarantee finally, caring employers are meeting their obligations to their workers and not exploiting them beyond the levels the law allows them to exploit workers to carry out their sole desire in life to provide jobs, jobs, jobs for the ingrates. Like big end of town jeweler Mike Hell Hill of Money, whose money has not been going to the workers, estimated anywhere between 10 or 25 million, showing how orderly their books must be. Millions for underpaying workers for years, and this so-called celebrity chef has got the recipe wrong and not put enough ingredients into his workers' pockets. Although he argues quite reasonably, penalty rates in an industry that largely operates outside normal hours are an impediment to profitability ability. Poor George, that's his name, George Cullum Barros from paying, but in every case they point out the problem lies with the awards. They're just too difficult to comprehend, unlike a diamond or a simple recipe. But as we keep saying, listener, how come when all these underpayments are caused by inadvertently getting it wrong, they never mean to underpay, we never see a case where they inadvertently overpay? Oh dear, we've been overpaying our workers for years. Logically, we'd expect it to be roughly
3: 50-50. Good morning. Yeah, we're just laughing Yeah, here. right. 50-50 <laughs> <laughs>
7: yeah. overpaid. Yeah. It's only overpaid when it's the government paying, you know, uh, right, okay. unemployed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, and that, that's, that's a bit of a scandal on its own. All right. We're on Solidarity. You're on Solidarity Breakfast. And this is Annie and Rebecca. And we're going to move straight along because we've got very little time to go. There's a film coming up at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, uh, called Luby. And, uh, you, if you're a well-versed, uh, art person, you might know that we're talking about Keith Luby. Now, Keith Luby is uh, was a real core celebrat at one period of time. He's a working class man, and part he was the darling of the Sydney art scene, but no longer. Uh, he did win an Archibald, but it took him about five years or so hunting hunting the Archibald like a uh, a rabbit shooter. But uh, and he finally got it. But anyway, I'm talk, I talked to Sean Murphy about this film. You might be interested to go along. How, how did you get involved in this project?
5: So our project uh, is a documentary called uh, Luby after the eponymous artist, uh, Sydney painter, Keith Luby. Um, and actually, Keith, who's still alive, um, befriended my dad way back in the 1970s. Uh, Back then, Keith was kind of the toast of the town, very successful painter who'd won pretty much every big award that there is to win in Australia, um, was exhibiting in New York, purchased by MoMA, uh, and basically any accolade you could think of was his. And then over the years, as my dad and his friendship continued, um, my dad noticed uh, to some mystery that Keith's Standing just kept sort of dropping to the point where nowadays he literally can't exhibit in any commercial galleries. Nobody will take him up on it. Nobody's interested. My dad wanted to kind of get to the bottom of that, and he wanted to make a film about Keith. My dad was uh, for many years a director at ABC TV, so I was kind of in his wheelhouse. By the time he got round to it uh, in 2016, unfortunately, he also contracted cancer. Mm. Uh, and by the close of 2016, when we were just ramping up production, my dad died. Uh, so from that point on, um, we really felt that uh, we wanted to finish this in, in my dad's memory and also just kind of find out why this great painter, Keith Luby, had been so sidelined.
3: And he is indeed a great painter. And I must say that I didn't know who he was, which is pretty bad, really. But um, <clears throat> that goes to the point of why you're making, you're making the film, Film, of course. Um, <clears throat> He's got a very interesting, uh, he sees himself quite clearly as left of field, that he's a working class boy, and uh, that has some impact on his uh, story and his connection to the art establishment, doesn't it?
5: Absolutely. And he's always not only pictured himself as an outsider, but positioned himself as such, And, and I guess. Um, at times really pushed back at an art establishment that at times has embraced him like when he you know won the Archibald prize which is one of the bigger prizes in Australia um, to now where it's absolutely uh banished him um, he always thought of himself as as he says in the film a public school kid and so many other people in the art world you know quite literally privately educated but also from Keith's perspective um, a lot of people belong to what he would call the charm school. Art designed to charm, not necessarily challenge politically or aesthetically, but simply to be pretty pictures on a rich lawyer's wall <laughs> for want of a better um image. Um and so that that attitude and that aspect uh initially won him a lot of interest and favours, but as that attitude continued, Keith never really mellowed as people uh, would often do once they've reached the summits of um, career glory, and uh, people have not taken kindly to it.
3: Now, he is a really prickly fellow, and um, I was wondering how you as filmmakers negotiated your way through <laughs> this, because it's a pretty tricky um, tricky uh, uh, brief for you.
5: Yeah, I mean... It's it's one of those things, sometimes we found ourselves, you know, um, uh, quite challenged at times to piece together uh, coherence um, from some of the interviews. I think rather than necessarily being somebody who's quick to anger or rude necessarily, um, Keith just wants to talk about what he wants to talk about. So you can sometimes ask a very direct question and get uh, some very meandering, indirect and at times infuriating answers. (laughs) So that was certainly a challenge. Um, But at the end of the day, once we had the film finished, you sort of have to step back and realise that, hey, in some ways, we've got the easier job. We are piecing together somebody else's life as a narrative. But for Keith, this is his life. Um, And the career successes as well as, you know, the the career challenges, the, um, the successes in terms of personal relationships and the challenges there, they're not some academic thing for him. They're not a narrative to piece together. It's real life. And as the movie tells it, there's some really pretty um, challenging stuff, both professionally and personally, that he has to grapple with. Mm. So at the end of the day, you know, we have the easy job. We can, you know, finish up at the edit suite and go home. But for Keith, this is his career, this is his life. And he really has given everything to painting, which has left, in some circumstances, other things being in a pretty challenging state.
3: I was really interested in his uh, physical uh, maim. uh The way he kept at certain point when you were talking to him, it was a fairly long session. I think you must have done uh, an interview with him over uh, an extended period of time and he's standing there and he's got his head sort of tucked under one shoulder and as he talks to you he lifts his head up as if he's waiting to see what your reaction will be or he's uh, saying a truth that he's not sure will be acceptable.
5: Yeah, look, I definitely think that is a thing of Keith. He likes to um, uh, uh, have certain statements certain truths, as he would consider them, uh, certain ideological positions that uh, he, he rolls out and challenges people with. And yes, as you say, there's even a sort of a physical tell there where he'll sort of get a bit of a glint in his eye and, and look up to see what the response to um, a certain statement is. I think what's challenging for people is that a lot of these statements uh, and, and positions have been very consistent throughout his life. Um, and, and for Keith, for him, uh, from what we understand, is that is a point of importance to be consistent, to hold true to certain values. For other people around him, that's obviously become a real point of frustration. That this guy doesn't just change or mellow or compromise on his positions. He really does have. Um, he really does have integrity.
3: Yeah, <laughs> people yeah. Like to
5: talk about integrity being this great thing. But the the thing about integrity is that if you really do hold to a position, you hold to a position, as Keith has done, and a lot of people, frankly, find that pretty difficult to stomach.
3: Uh, And the other thing about it is that, like I said, I didn't know who he was, but I'm really grateful to your film because he's actually a great artist. It's quite clear his work is great.
5: Mm. And that's the thing. That, uh, That, I think, was at the nucleus of my dad's desire to create this film. Um, he saw this undisputably excellent art and knew this, you know, by the time my dad was particularly good friends with him, pretty easygoing, a little bit of a rascal, but generally speaking, an easygoing, nice guy, and just could not understand why somebody with artwork of this quality, somebody with accolades in the past at that level, and as I said, is literally shut out of even the smallest commercial gallery. People have really just pulled down the shutters. Um... And so the film, I think, really talks to you know the nature of politics in the art world, what you do and kind of don't do to stay in their good graces. Um, and hopefully what this film does as more people see it is, well, you know, in some ways um, accept Keith for who he is, but but step a little bit past his personality and really embrace his art because there is so much fantastic, not just painting, but illustration. Oh, yeah, that, the illustrations.
3: The illustrations were just unbelievably good.
5: Mm. His history of black and white Australia, yeah. amazing. Uh, this was put together over a period of a decade or so, starting the 1960s. And it's black and white, very detailed, very stylized illustrations, picturing key events in Australia's colonial past, many of which, particularly in the 1960s, you just did not talk about. We're talking about... Um, the uh, picturing of uh, uh, aboriginals interacting with white australian settlers and the facts around that that there were massacres that there was killings that it was not a happy time uh, particularly for indigenous people and these are things that keith um draws in this black and white history of australia and as we conducted the documentary we um we, we had a number of Indigenous artists who were interviewees, and they were just bowled over, particularly those who were new to his work, to see somebody who was absolutely, you know, a white fella being so upfront about the brutal colonial history of Australia and portraying Aboriginals with such, I suppose, a, a, a sympathy and interest to their own culture. Um, oh, and respect. Is, sorry?
3: And respect.
5: And respect in a way that would be fresh now um, that even to think that this happened during the 1960s, it's almost unbelievable how ahead of his time Keith was um, when it comes to an interest and, as you say, respect for Indigenous history.
3: And it's really interesting that even though the fact is that, I mean, he's quite clearly fantastic, his work is fantastic, and uh, he might be a pain in the arse, but it does tell you that the art scene... Uh, the establishment art scene that's all about money has really got a few answers, uh, 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 questions uh, above its head uh, in regards to its uh, own sense of uh, privilege, I guess. Yeah,
5: absolutely. I mean, it it is one of those things that after making this and hopefully after uh, people watch it, you really do start to interrogate who gets to decide what is art what is fine art in our country who gets to decide what goes up on gallery walls because there really are just a handful of people across the country who are the final arbiters of that kind of stuff and so Keith's work is owned by every major gallery in Australia and many overseas but they're all in storage because it's been decided that Keith as a person is not somebody that people want to deal with therefore Keith's art is not something that gets hung on walls and By all means, Keith is probably the tip of the iceberg. There are probably a number of other really fantastic Australian artists who, for whatever reason, maybe it's a personality, maybe it's an ethnicity, whatever, have been shut out by a few curators over a couple of decades and now their names are all but forgotten. So we really want to put not just Keith's name out there and his artwork back into the popular consciousness, but really start a conversation around who gets to decide what and why, when it comes to the art that Australians enjoy.
3: Yeah, well, it's great. And uh, it's on at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival here in uh, Melbourne. Do you know when it's showing? And uh, it's at the Nova, isn't it? Absolutely.
5: So it's at Cinema Nova in Carlton, and it is showing in a little over a week's time. It's on at 2pm, Saturday 27th of July. So that's not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, Saturday week. And we've just got one screening down in Melbourne, so we would encourage anyone who's a bit of a gallery goer or just interested in Australian art in general, um, because uh, anyone who comes along is really going to be introduced to an interesting guy, but above all, some fantastic art that you're just going to really want to sink your teeth into.
3: And he's right. It was really interesting. Yes. I was surprised. I didn't know who he was. I'm going to go. Yeah, cool. And uh, before we leave, this is uh, Solidarity Breakfast coming to its end on 3CR, uh, we're going to have a little uh, little speech that was given by a, Sudanese, a young Sudanese woman at the Fair Go for Pensioners uh, conference. conference. <laughs> and this is to remind you that there is a rally at 2pm outside the library, State Library, in support of refugees calling for the end of the detention centres. It's time. See you later.
2: Bye. Thank you very much. Um, sorry, I don't have any notes, but hopefully <laughs> I remember what I'll be saying. So, so as you all have heard, my name is Paul and I'm originally from South So today I'm just going to be sharing a bit of my story of how my family and I migrated to Australia and then um, so very, the welcoming that we had when we first came here, the treatment that the Australian society gave us, compared um, to the current cohort and the treatment that the, um, that the government or the, or the community is treating people seeking asylum at the moment. So just the two comparisons. So just a bit of a background. Um, uh, like I said before, I, I actually migrated from Sudan. So I was born in a refugee camp, spent about um, the first 10 years of my life living there. So basically we lived in very inhumane conditions. We had no access to electricity, clean water, education, or proper Medicare system. Um, We stayed in that refugee camp and were expected um, to apply for refugee status so that the, um, the UN can determine whether we were genuine refugees. So my dad went through the process, he filled in the form, and then we just had to, like, basically sit and wait around to see which country will accept us, whether if it was Australia, the UK, um, Canada, New Zealand. It wasn't really up to us. It just You send in the form and then they go off and pick wherever. So the Australian government picked, um, chose us to come here. So we migrated around 2001, so that was during um, the, the John Howard era. And at that time, when we first arrived... Um, the people were actually very welcoming, so our neighbors were quite kind. Um, we had the community very supportive. Um, the Uniting Church would come over to our house. they give us toys, and they were showing us around. My parents um, actually went to English classes with AIMS, so there was all those support systems that we had. And as I was growing up as well, I started off in primary school, and I, and I used to do, like, a lot of running. And then I remember the first time the issue of seeking asylum came up. So one of the parents came up to me, and then it was like, oh, yeah, um, so well done, I'm winning your race. Um, do you have a coach? Because you run really well. And I'm like, oh, no, actually, I don't have a coach. I just came to the country, I, and I actually do running for fun. I came here as a refugee. All of a sudden, his face just changed. And I'm like, okay, did I say something wrong? Is my English not that great? And then it was like, oh, so you came by boat? And I'm like, no. innocently I'm like, I came by plane, and then... And then his face changed back again. I'm like, okay. So now there's a difference between a vote and a pay. I had no idea. And they just... Yeah, they kept asking that question over and over again, and, and I actually came to realize that there was a difference between people that came by boat and that came by plane, and it came, like it became apparent to me that because we came by boat, we were seen as, sorry we came by plane, we were seen as the deserving refugees, and then the ones that came by boat were not so much. And due to the government rhetoric and everything that you saw on the media, and how these boat people were throwing their kids overboard, or they were bringing in diseases, or coming to take our jobs, it just became the us and the them. And it's just like, you know, the good and the bad refugee. So I fell for that rhetoric and I started disliking these these boat people. And then I started saying, oh, you know, my parents and I stayed in this refugee camp for 10 years. How dare you jump on a boat and try to take our position? You know, we waited in the queue and now you think you can just, like, hop here. But then, because I didn't know any better, it's what I saw in the media, that's what I heard around neighbours, so I thought that's what it was until I actually started to volunteer um, with certain organisations such as the Asylum Secret Resource Centre. There I started to learn that there was no such thing as a queue in the first place, and there's no deserving or undeserving refugee, and just because you come by a like plane or boat, that doesn't make you any better than the other person, and that seeking asylum is not you know, a crime or anything like that. So through that, I just started to learn and I and, and, and I basically opened my mind to a lot of the issues that were affecting people here and decided to um, to advocate on their behalf, just try and educate people, just become aware of certain issues or why people seek asylum in the first place. So basically, it's not like... People actually make these decisions because they don't have choices. It's like you um, you can either stay where you are and, you know, die or hop in a bed or playing whatever it is and just hope for the best. No parent wants to put their children in a certain situation because they want to, but it's because they have to. So basically, like, so right now, like, a lot of people who are seeking asylum, many of them have... Like you have seen, have been living in detention centres for like over six years. I have friends that I've come across, but th- th- there was a friend of mine that came by boat, um in 2013, so he was on a roof for about three months, and then has currently been put into community detention. So he's on something called a bridging visa. So that that bridging visa allows him to stay in Australia while he waits um, for his papers to be processed. And so basically, while he's been waiting, he has no access to work, to education, or to Medicare. He has not been able to see his family. Um, when he left, his wife was pregnant, so she gave birth. They have, like, a six-year-old daughter now who refuses to talk to him. He will call often and say, like, you know, you left us. You know, my dad, I don't want to talk to you. And this man is, like, constantly depressed. And that's the same issue that a lot of the people are going through as well. They've been waiting for more than six years, left in limbo with with pretty much nowhere to go a lot of them want to work but they don't get the right to actually work so it's like you're on this bridging visa but you're not allowed to work you're on this bridging visa but you can't have access to medicare system so they often rely on charities to help them out um for like basic needs food and um and healthcare system as well but a lot of these charities now becoming overwhelmed because there's there's just so much going on and it's just yeah a lot of these issues that you currently face and i'm just like i keep wondering like what change did you enjoy listening to that podcast Here at
0: 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power Radical Podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.